Well, this afternoon, uh, this being uh, the fifth Sunday of a month that has such number of Sundays, we're in our occasional series uh, in prayer, working through the various different movements of uh, what is often called the Lord's Prayer. I prefer to call it the Disciples' Prayer. And we're going to be continuing our walk through that today on what's uh, often referred to as the second petition. So we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Uh, let's hear that prayer again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also been forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And also added is for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Found in many manuscripts, which I consider authentic. Let us pray. Father, we come to you and ask that you would break for us the bread of life, that you would open up the word to us and reveal Christ to us and what it is to live in him by faith, resting in him and receiving from him. We ask you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you your truth. And we ask that you would chain us to your word and that you would chain this preacher to your word, that he might freely declare your truth, to do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of prayer, many different types of thoughts may come to our mind. Some of us may look forward to it with great joy. There may be others among us who, when we approach prayer, we think of it as something, oh, I have to do this again, because it, it is hard work. Prayer can be very hard work. Sometimes it's often guilt-inducing, in, uh, guilt sometimes driven by a sense of uh, what we've said is law, detached from any sense of grace. When we understand prayer right, it should be something that we go to and understand with joy and with something that is a great benefit to us. We saw in Psalm 116, verses 8 through 14, Towards the end, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. In recounting the good things God had done for him, what did he say? I shall do unto the Lord to give thanks to him. I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will ask him for more benefits, for the benefits that he's given to me. 
We've seen in Hebrews that we should approach our God with boldness because of His grace in Christ Jesus for all of our spiritual and temporal needs. It's thanksgiving as it expresses dependence upon God. It's an act of obedience. It shows faith in God and it's the language of humility. When we look at prayer as something as a where, where there's time limits or minimums on the amount of prayer, we approach it wrongly. We also approach it wrongly when we look at it as formulas, that if we say the right words in the right ways in the right time, that if we don't say our Father at the beginning, and if we don't say the exact words in Jesus' name at the end, we have not prayed. Because in reality, those are postures that we approach. It's good to say those. It's, it's, we're commanded to say our Father, but it's because of what's behind it. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's the idea of approaching God through Jesus on account of His merits. And when, we look at the, when we've looked at the disciples' prayer here, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, uh, we've looked at uh, the opening words as well as the first of the six petitions. The first petition, we saw that we, we saw our Father isn't our Father who is in heaven. The six petitions being, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. With a conclusion, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We've been going, we're going through each one of those elements of the prayer to learn what it is we are doing when we pray and we say these things to our Father. When we approach God, we approach Him as a Father, our Heavenly Father, able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Recognizing our citizenship and our hope is not fundamentally earthly, but it is fundamentally otherworldly. And that it also ties us to all those who are in our Father through Christ Jesus. While our earthly familial bonds with family are important, they are not absolute. Same with any other bonds that we might have. The one absolute and eternal family bond that exists is those who are in Christ Jesus. That language we saw we might say we have more in common with the believer living in a hut in the plains of a faraway land than an unbeliever who might be at my place in life who is very much like me in other ways than my relationship to Christ. When we looked at hallowed be your name, this first petition, we're asking God that he would honor his name in our lives, in the church and throughout the world by creating worshipers of him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us now to the focus of today, which is the second petition or the second request of God. And we're saying your kingdom come, your kingdom come. There's a couple different aspects of this. We're asking, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but we're asking about something with regards to something called a kingdom. And then we're asking for it to come. And so that's going to be the flow of what we do. What does it mean by kingdom? And what does it mean by your kingdom come? If we're going to pray, we should pray informed according to his word. I am not the first uh, to ever deal with this. Praise the Lord for that, by the way, that I'm not the first to ever deal with this. There's been a lot of uh, writing that has been done on these uh, six petitions. 
uh, when, so I like looking at the catechisms on this, and there's all sorts of catechisms. So when I say the catechisms, I mean like the Westminster and the Heidelberg. And also, I add Calvin's to that. But in the Westminster Catechism, when it says, what do we pray for in the second petition? It says, in the second petition, this is the shorter one, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. The Westminster Larger Catechism, and it's called Larger because it's more detailed and longer and more involved. The second petition, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, and the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those who are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those who are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of a second coming and our reigning with him forever, that he would be pleased so as to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Heidelberg, which that and the... the uh, uh, companion version from the Baptist mind <clears throat> says, Thy kingdom come, that is, so govern us by the word and spirit that we submit ourselves to you always more and more, preserve and increase your church, destroy the works of the devil, every power that exalts itself against you, and all wicked devices formed against your holy word until the full coming of your kingdom when you shall be all in all. John Calvin even has things to say on this. He says it consists principally of two things, that he leads his own and governs them by his spirit. And on the other hand, casts down and confounds the reprobate who refuse to subject themselves to his rule. So makes it clear that there is no power which can resist his power. So that's what it is to pray. In what sense do we pray that his kingdom may come? That day by day, the Lord may increase the numbers of the faithful that day by day he may increasingly bestow his graces upon them until he has fulfilled that, filled them completely. Moreover, that he causes truth to shine more and more and manifest his justice so that Satan and the powers of darkness may be put to confusion and all iniquity be destroyed and abolished. He said, is that not taking place today? He says, yes, indeed, in part. But we pray that it may be continually increased and advanced until at last it comes to its perfection in the day of judgment which God alone will be exalted and every creature will be humbled before his majesty and he will be all in all. Martin Luther says, when we pray this, we're asking that the kingdom of God indeed come, that the kingdom of God comes indeed without our prayer of itself, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. And how does it come? When our heavenly father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead a godly life here in time and yonder in eternity. So, as mentioned earlier, looking at the text now, we're asking your kingdom come. So first of all, we must ask the question, what is the kingdom for which we are asking to come? Secondly, what are we asking for when we ask for this kingdom to come? When we regard these questions, we'll have a better idea of how we can pray with regards to this petition.
First of all, when we look at the idea of your kingdom, one of the most prominent thoughts that run throughout the Gospels, and the synoptic Gospels, that's a big word, means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because it they look together. That's what the word synoptic means. They look, they look together. You can see they have a lot of similar material and similar order. And then you have the Gospel of John. And it is prominent in all of them, in John, but more, John's a more subtle from a slightly different angle. But the kingdom of God is a very prominent aspect in all of the Gospels. What do you and I think of when we think of the word kingdom? What comes to our mind? There may be some of us who, when we think of a kingdom, we may think of a stretch of land, a piece of property, which sometimes a really big piece of property. Like we might think of the British Isles when we think of a kingdom, the United Kingdom. We may think of it in terms of the territory of that. Others, you know, when we think of a kingdom, we might say, what is a kingdom without a king? And so the first thing that comes to our mind is that of a king or a ruler. Still others may think when we hear the word kingdom, the first thing that comes to our mind might be uh, the people who are underneath the rule of a king in a kingdom. Others may have a mix and others might have all the above come to our mind. And while all those are legitimate understandings of kingdom, our concern is what is it Jesus speaking about when he says, your kingdom come? What is it in the Gospels that he's speaking of when he speaks of your kingdom? And what we're going to see today, and I could actually speak on this for hours because I spent much time studying this idea in seminary and teaching on it, uh, but we're not going to spend hours on it, don't worry. We have a business meeting in a little bit. But we see very early, we're going to learn today that it's a more of a dynamic idea than that. More of an idea of not so much a place or a people, but rather the rule itself. The rule of the king itself is the kingdom. And so, or his right to rule. But when we look in the Gospel of Mark very early on, right after his baptism, Jesus began his ministry as it's recorded, Matthew 1, 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does he say about what, how does he open up his ministry? He opens up right away by, by proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, repent for the kingdom of God, what does he say, is at hand. What does it mean at hand? It means it's right there. It's within reach. It's very, very close. But not only did Jesus speak of this kingdom as being something that was at hand or near, he also spoke of, of it as something that was being that was present at the very moment. Something that was upon him and those around. Matthew 12, 28. Jesus was questioned. And of course, many of the times he was questioned by uh, the leaders. It was not sincere. And in this case, it was not. They were attempting to trap him. But they saw his miracles and they saw his great acts. And they said, by what authority are you casting out 
these demons. Because the accusation was, oh, he's doing this by the power of the devil. And Jesus responded in Matthew 12, 28, But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Of course, he was doing his work by the Spirit of God, and so the kingdom of God there was present. We also Jesus, uh, see Jesus speaking of the kingdom of God and say Matthew 23 through 25 as something in the future that isn't quite grasped yet from the standpoint of Matthew 23 through 25. The Gospel of John, when interacting with Pilate, he states that he's a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world, that it's of a different type than what Pilate is thinking of when he thinks of a kingdom. It's very important also to recognize that there's an entire Old Testament background to this idea and expectation. The Hebrew Scriptures, that runs, is a very important idea that runs throughout throughout the Old Testament, looking forward to the rule of God or His kingdom. And we'll go through some of these scriptures. Um, we this, Some of you, this may be something that you recognize, as this is from part of the, um, from one of the lessons that we did on uh, living in God's two kingdoms, looking at the idea of the kingdom. But Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 5, here, speaking of when Israel, as Israel, as the covenant people in the Mosaic covenant, was constituted as a nation there at Sinai. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. What it say? He ruled over his people. We also see that uh, our, our God is a king and has a kingdom that rules over all creation. 2 Kings 19, verse 15, it says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And so he has a universal rule that rules over um, all people everywhere. And we also learned in our two kingdoms class that uh, <clears throat> his uh, general rule or common rule over everyone is not a redemptive rule. We learned that there's a, God provided a redemptive rule or redemptive kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through him that redemption is found. Which, if you want to know more about that, you can talk to me. That was a long study. But in Psalm 96, verses 10 through 13, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There we see that there is this idea of God coming into his creation, coming into history and bringing joy in the midst of bringing judgment. George Ladd 
one of my favorite authors, looks at the Old Testament panorama or the Hebrew scriptures and says the first and outstanding characteristic of the Old Testament concept is that it is theocentric, God-centered, and dynamic. It is the rule of God. Furthermore, the emphasis is not upon the state of affairs or the final order of things, but upon the fact that God will rule. The state of affairs will finally be introduced when Jesus returns. Psalm 145, verses 11 through 13 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. We also see in Psalm 98, the famous verse, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness, the people with equity. Deuteronomy 33, verses 2 and 5, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Thus the Lord became king, which we just read in Jeshurun. We see other passages like in Isaiah 59, verse 20, that in his, in his visitation he'll deliver from enemies and bring redemption. In his visitation in Isaiah 26, he'll bring judgment. In Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, he'll bring rejoicing, which we're going to touch on Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 in a little bit. But at the Old Testament... The Hebrew scriptures have, have this timeline in which there's coming a day that's going to change everything. When you think of there's an, that we live in this time, there's going to be, there's, think of an X marks the spot. At that X brings in what, we, what theologians have called the age to come. And Paul speaks of that in Ephesians. But that coming of the day of the Lord is the coming of his rule, the coming of his kingdom. We see, the, we see that spoken of in Amos 5, 18 through 20, and Joel 2, verse 1, and 28 and 29, and Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. You can write those down and look those up if you wish. I have them here. For time's sake, I may not read them all. In Daniel 7, we see the picture of one who is the Ancient of Days. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Speaking of this one who is like the son of man who is coming. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus spoke much on the kingdom of God, and that entire Old Testament backdrop is there. We mentioned earlier in Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is upon you if, if what he's doing is legitimate by the hand of God, by the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. What was there? What was present to show that the kingdom of God was present? Had a new land been created? What was present? Rather, who was present? What was present and who was present was the king and his rule. And so where Jesus is, so is his rule. 
Where Jesus is, so is his rule. Luke 19, verses 12 through 14, Jesus, uh, speaking of a parable, in a parable, uses, which is simply using common language and common ideas to illustrate a truth. We have to be careful with parables that we don't turn them into allegories. But they use common language. And listen to what he says. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So a nobleman went to a faraway land to get what? A kingdom. Now, he's a nobleman, and he wanted to, the, it was clearly understood that um, it was getting a kingdom in order to reign over a group of people, yet the people were already there, and yet the piece of land was already there. What is it that he lacked? He lacked the rule, the right to rule. The right to exercise dominion. So that's what, the, that's what Jesus is speaking of when he speaks of kingdom here, is he speaks of his dominion. He speaks of his right to rule, his influence, his rule, which is found in his redemptive act, his redemptive rule. People were expecting the kingdom of God when Jesus came. They were expecting Messiah to bring the kingdom. And to bring this rule that had been promised. And there were many expectations that we can see hinted at in the language of the scriptures as well as history. There were some who were expecting some sort of what we would call a socio-political kingdom. That is a kingdom that would be political in nature. That would be one of a king who has an iron scepter, who's going to have a military, and he's going to, he's going to overturn Rome, and you're going to have a new glorious um, country, so to speak. It would revolutionize human society. But what did Jesus bring? Him and a small band of disciples. And he brought words, and he brought deeds. Words that people said, I'm not receiving that. And deeds that people said, the devil made you do that. And he brought with him a cross. There are others who were looking for someone who would be an ethnic cleanser, who would drive out the Gentiles from Palestine. Or others who were looking forward to, and this is similar to the first one, a revolutionary leader, someone who would lead in the grand revolution. But that's not what came. In fact, because of what was happening, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus to basically say, um, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? As you know, John had been promising that with the Messiah was going to come baptism of spirit and baptism of fire. And maybe saying, so where's the fire? It says, when Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see, hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And Jesus didn't just pull that up out of nowhere. That's actually a quote from a a passage I referenced earlier that I promised you we would read. From Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6, from the prophets. Isaiah being the, the first of the prophets. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Right before that, and speaking about a day in which all things are going to be made right. But verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus quoted Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. He said, you want to see if I'm the one. Look around you. This is here. It's just not what you were expecting. He has come not to bring the sword, but rather he came to bring the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Even in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of himself in 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the coming of his kingdom. You see, with the expectation of some sort of irresistible power, with an iron scepter, was the idea. He come with his iron scepter, he shall bring his rule, and everyone will be compelled to bow before him. In reality, that's not what happened. In fact, he died a death. He died a humiliating death. Rose from the dead. Glory be to God for that. Jesus even hinted at this in his parable. Well, one of his many of his parables, but in particular in the parable of the seed. It's in Matthew chapter thirteen. There's a man who went to go to go sow his seed in the field, and he cast his seed, and some of the seed. Uh, bore fruit, lasting fruit. Others did not. Those fell by the wayside. Those that fell among the thorns. <clears throat> and then there was the and then there was the seed that was planted in good soil. But what does he say the seed is? What is the word? See the expectation being an irresistible power with an iron scepter. He came preaching words, declaring words, words that many rejected. Words that some said, yes, I'll receive this, and then just kind of toss it off. But yet the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus Christ, his rule. Came in the, pers- the, pers- the, per- the presence of one who was rejected, whose words were rejected by men, and whose acts were attributed to the devil. So the kingdom for which we are asking is the rule of God in Christ Jesus, which he brought with him and is still with us in his act of redemption and salvation from sin 
which has come to us. It comes to us in the word of God spoken and in deeds done in his service and by his power. That is what we're asking for. We're asking for his rule to be in our hearts and our minds. And just as God came in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, so he still comes to us. There is continuing work in us. So what are we asking for when we ask for the kingdom of God to come? We're asking for us, first of all, and this is in no particular order, because all are equally important. But for us, we're asking for the gospel of what God has done for us on our behalf to become ever more real to us. We're asking for what God did and is doing to be ever more real to us, to be an increasing presence in our life. We're also asking for his influence and his work by the Spirit to work increasingly in us that we might live in him and seek and be more obedient to him according to his law. The law has place for the Christian. We just must understand that the law is not gospel and the gospel is not law. Laws for us to follow as a matter of thankfulness. And when we're asking for God's kingdom to come, we're asking that you and I might live more thankful lives in obedience to his law. His law being his eternal moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments. Which, when we went through our series on the Ten Commandments, we saw it's far more than what's on the surface of those. It's everything that leads up to those in the minds and in the hearts, so that we might be more faithful to him and live in him, that he might rule over us as he already does, that we might be faithful to his word, that we might be faithful to serve him in our ordinary lives, for his rule, that we would submit to his rule, and that we would also live in hope expectation of the full fruition of his rule we've used this illustration before his rule is present now with us his kingdom is present with us we have his present his kingdom present with us in the form of the cake batter it hasn't been baked yet it's coming today when that that wonderful i'm sorry if you don't like this kind of cake but it's my favorite that wonderful yellow vanilla cake with the white frosting is made and it's baked now for you chocolate lovers your you know your your german chocolate cake you know with loaded with chocolate if you like those think of it in those terms if that's your cup of tea but that's what we're looking forward to and we're asking to be driven by the hope of that the confident expectation the christian we live in hope of what we don't see of what we don't grasp And we oftentimes, when we pray for this, for your kingdom to come, just like those who are around with Jesus have these expectations that he was not bringing, we sometimes bring expectations. That we might expect that everything would be made perfect and right, right now. That I could 
be forever done with all my depressions and anxieties and all my and all my sin could be gone. I long for that day. Someone said in their testimony really, it's so annoying, isn't it? Our sin. <laughs> but yet his kingdom is still presence, present and working in us. We're asking it to come. We're also praying for the church. We're praying for us here together as a body that makes up Redeeming Grace Church, what we call the visible church. Us and all other gospel churches throughout the world. The visible church. As well as for the church universal. But for the visible church, that we would be a people who have the gospel and cherish it. And that our worship would be driven, driven by solely the word of God. That we would be a people who rest in Christ. Rest not in ourselves. And that the church, we at Redeeming Grace Church and all other churches throughout the world, including the others in this town, would be faithful to the gospel, would be faithful to the word, would keep proclaiming Christ. One reason why I'm always encouraged in each one of those prayer, weekly prayer requests from the uh, uh, associated churches, it's always that the elders would be faithful to the word and have wisdom. For us to be a church, to be faithful, and that her offices might be filled with faithful men to maintain doc- doctrinal faithfulness and love for Christ. We could be a community of faith and love and hope. We're asking for his kingdom to be present. My own mentor in New Testament, uh, Leroy Metz, used to say with regards to this idea of the kingdom being present among us, it's a taste of things to come. Say if someone wishes to, comes to you and asks, what is heaven like? You should be able to say, come follow me around for a day and I can give you a little taste. And then he would, you know, he's from a Southern Baptist background, so he'd say this. And if someone asked you, what is heaven like? You could say, come to my church, just don't come to our midweek business meeting. And we can show you what heaven is like. That's what we're asking for when he asks for the kingdom of God to come to us. And we could have a taste of that which is coming, his rule. And we're also praying for the world. We're praying for all other Christians throughout there and also for the world, world that the word of Christ may, might, be go, might go out from his people to every kind of people. That the word of Christ, might that's how people enter in to the redemptive rule of Jesus Christ is by hearing the word and the spirit of God creating faith and bringing them to faith in him. That's his redemptive rule. That is the kingdom of Christ into which we've been transferred. Everyone sits under the universal rule of God by which he's governing the affairs of creation and providence. Then we might call we in our two kingdoms class we call that the Noahic covenant. Redemption is found in the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. 
when we're asking for that, we're asking that, that folks might be, as Colossians 1.13 says, be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We must also remember when we pray for the world in this. Jesus, when he came, did not offer a, did not offer a grand revolution. He did not offer a socio-political transformation or some sort of utopian age in this dream. In this age, I should say. Utopian dream in this age. Rather, he offered his life and rose from the dead and brought about redemption and created a new humanity. A new humanity in him. He created a new creation that exists alongside the current creation. And so we must remember what we're praying for. And as, as people come to faith in Christ, and the influence of Christ is upon more people, there will be influences upon humanity. But as history has shown, Christians are not always perfect at that either. We've done plenty of damage in our own history too. So, But that glorious day is coming. And that's the hope of the Christian, a looking forward when he returns and the day of resurrection comes. It's also, and that's what we call the eschatological praying. Again, just to find words that has to do with the end. Eschatology is this, the uh, knowledge of the last, the knowledge of the end. And we're waiting his return. And when we ask for his kingdom to come, we're asking for Jesus to make haste to bring about the day of resurrection and judgment. Although when we ask for that, we are oftentimes more like the hobbit before the ants who are wanting the ants to move quickly. But the ants don't move quickly. And they say to the hobbits, you are a hasty, young group, hasty group, aren't you? It seems like long for us. But just as we can be encouraged with this, it will end. And we're praying for that to come. When praying for this, we're asking for the full number of the elect from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people to come to faith in Christ and enter into the new humanity to join in the new creation. So people of God, this is a very powerful prayer we're praying. Your kingdom come. In closing, let us ask the Lord so to do. For his rule to be greater in our lives. To be greater in our church. And churches throughout the world. And for his kingdom to come to those who do not know him. Through the, coming, through the word of God being proclaimed. That they might believe Christ and enter in to his new creation. Enter into his new humanity, including those. And if we read the news, we have people that we see that we go like, including those people, including those people. Let us pray. Our Father, having heard and learned about prayer, in particular today, your kingdom come. We ask that. Would your kingdom come to us? 
that we might be a people who know Christ and hold on to him. Who rest upon him and receive from him. And from that, be faithful to your law. For, for us as a church and for your churches throughout the world, to be a people who are tied to and chained to your revelation, to your word, who rest in you, who understand our calling as a church corporate, our mission. And that you would bring people throughout the world from every tongue, tribe, and nation to faith in Christ Jesus. And we say, Maranatha, come, O Lord, return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.